may be seated. Last week, we saw as Jesus began teaching in parables. We're going to be teaching through seven successive parables in, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 specifically. And so last week, we saw as Jesus taught a parable about four different types of soil that the seed finds. Well, in between the little section that we covered, the, the parable given and the parable explained, there's this question on behalf of the disciples. Having heard the story that Jesus has, has spoken, to heard the parable that Jesus has taught, the disciples seem to be perplexed. And so they come to Jesus and they ask Jesus, basically, Jesus, why are you speaking so complexly? Why are you speaking in a way that, that seems almost to be cryptic at times? Jesus, why are you saying things that people are having difficulty understanding? Why don't you just come out and say what you have to say? Why don't you just speak plainly to us? And so where we're going to pick up today is Jesus responding to his disciples. Jesus responding to them that they might know why it is that he's speaking this way. But I think there's even beyond that, another reason that Jesus is giving us this uh, passage today is that he wants his disciples in this moment to be encouraged. He wants their, their hearts to be lifted. I think that's front and center as they are endeavoring to go deeper and deeper with Christ and face the conspirators against Christ. They want their heads to be lifted. They, Jesus wants his disciples encouraged. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 10 today. We'll read verses 10 through 17. Matthew chapter 13 verses 10 through 17. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 10, God's inerrant word says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, being, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes. For they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word today. You may be seated. So his disciples, having asked the question of why Jesus speaks so complexly, why Jesus speaks in a way that is apparently difficult for them to understand, and Jesus seems to respond back with an equally complex response. Jesus responds back to their wanting, their desire for him to speak simply, him to speak in simpler terms and in simpler stories, and he seems to respond back in a way that is kind of equally complex, equally deep, and so you, you got to believe that for the disciples, their, their minds are just spinning here. Now, as Jesus responds to his disciples, this time, it's not that it's so difficult for them to understand intellectually. They can hear what Jesus says, and they can, they can understand it in their mind, perhaps. 
But here it's more difficult for them to understand emotionally. It's, it's harder here, not so hard for them to wrap their minds around it as it is to wrap their hearts around it. There are a lot of truths of God's word that are like that, aren't there? There are, are truths in God's word that we can understand in our mind and we can know intellectually, but, but believing them in our hearts and loving them with our hearts and wrapping our hearts around them can be quite difficult. And so Jesus here, as a matter of fact, speaks very straightforwardly. He says that the reason that they don't see is that God has not shown them. And the reason that you do see is that God has shown you. That he's speaking here to the sovereignty of God. And he said there are some that the Father has given this knowledge to. There are some that the Father has given these secrets to. And there are others that the Father has withheld these secrets from. And so you are here, you're talking with me, you're seeing, you're understanding because I'm telling you. And you are ones that the Father is giving this knowledge to. But them, many of them, most of them are those from whom the Father is withholding it. Now this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around. This is difficult for us to wrap our hearts around as to why does God working this way? Why is he speaking this way? But God, Jesus is speaking clearly here to the sovereign choice of God. And he's doing this in terms of gift giving. We understand this in how, and this is how gifts work, right? He says there are some to whom the Father has given the gift of understanding, the given the wisdom, given the secrets, and there are some from whom the Father, or some to whom the Father has not given the wisdom, has not given the gift of understanding and wisdom. And what all of us understand is that's how gifts work. That, that gifts are solely upon the desire and choice of the giver, not upon the performance of the receiver, right? That you don't give a gift because someone deserves it. You don't give a gift because someone has, has performed in such a way that they should get the gift. That's not a gift, that's a wage. You give a gift because you love someone. You give a gift out of generosity, you get a gift out of desire. It's not earned. And so even when you give a gift, the gift giver is not unjust if the gift giver does not give the gift. Because it was in his choice to do so. He was doing so based upon his love. He was doing so based upon his desire. So it is not unjust for a gift giver to not give to someone a gift. It is unjust to, for someone not to give a wage. If a wage is something that you've performed for, something that you've worked for, and you don't receive it, then that is unjust. It is completely unjust if you're making $7 an hour, or $7.25 an hour, or I guess $15 an hour, whatever that's going to look like in the future. If you're making that, and you work an hour, and you don't get your $15, then, then, you've been, the, 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 then your company was unjust to you. And so Jesus is, is using this language to help us wrap our minds around the, how all of this is coming together and how all of this is, is coming together within the, the crowd of, of the people that has been preaching. And so what we see here is the difference in a wage and a gift. Now all of us would understand this when we're talking about giving a gift to our, our spouse. Now if I went and I gave to my wife Megan and I, I handed her a checklist of chores and I said, baby... If you'll just do this, yeah, y'all laughing. Because I have to be getting dentures next week. But I handed her a checklist of chores, and I said, baby, if you will just do all of these things, I will buy you some flowers. Because if you, if you will do all of the checklist, if you will go down and, and perform all of the things up to my standards as the ruler and arbiter of this house, then I will reward you with flowers. Well, when I bring her home a bouquet of roses, that's not a gift. That's a wage. 
That's something that she's earned. And she's not going to receive it from me with the delight that she would a gift. But if I'm driving my truck and I'm coming in and it's, I'm kind of maybe tired on my way home after whatever. And I th- start thinking, you know, I'm fixing to go home and supper is ready. I'm going to go home and my kids are taken care of. I begin to maybe linger and to think about how beautiful my wife is and how good she is to me and how good she is to my family. And I think, man, I've got to get her something. And I swing in at the last second, you know, how men work. And I, I grab her a bouquet of roses. Now, she deserves them. That's not what I'm saying. But I come home and I, and I hand her the bouquet and I say, baby, I was thinking about you. And I love you, and I want you to know how much I appreciate all that you do around here. And I want you to to know how much I appreciate just being able to come home to you every day and how you encourage me and what a blessing you are to me. And so so I've just I just wanted to get you something just to just to kind of just to kind of say that. It's altogether different, isn't it? It's the difference between a wage and a gift. A wage speaks to merit, a gift speaks to love. One is earned, one is freely and generously given. Romans 6.23, I think, helps us to kind of wrap our minds around this in the spiritual world. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. That what we have earned, what we deserve, what we have garnered as a result of our sin, what we are owed by God to be just to us, is we we are owed death physically, eternally, spiritually. We are owed death. That is our wage. That is what we have garnered. That is what we deserve. As a matter of fact, for us not to get that is unjust unless God makes a righteous provision in Christ Jesus. But for all of us who are in Christ, for all of us who are saved, for all of us that have been by his wounds healed, for all of us that have been adopted into God's family, that's a gift. That's a gift we did not deserve. That's a gift that we could not earn. That's a gift that we could not perform up to a high enough standard to overcome the corruption of our flesh and be right with him. One sin, death. And now we are not going to die. We have put on immortality in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is saying that the difference is the gift. The gift. Those to whom the secrets have been given, those not, they did not deserve it. They did not earn it. It was not, but God loving them. God giving out of his generosity. God giving out of his free grace. God giving out of his mercy has given them the gift of mercy. Has given them the gift of the secrets that now they might perceive. Now they might see. You know, I find it true in my own life that the sovereignty of God is one of the most offensive things for me to study. It's offensive. It's hard. It's difficult for me to wrap my mind around. And I think the reason it is hard for me and probably hard for most of us is that I like to believe I'm a little more in control than I actually am. I like to believe that I'm a little bit more in control of me, and I'm a little bit more in control of my world, and I'm a little bit more in control of my circumstances than I really am. And so when, when it comes in and says, no, God is the gift giver. God is the one that is sovereign. God is the one that is the ruler. God is the one that is the arbiter of the universe. God is the one that is in control of all this. Like, that offends me. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you what's much worse. What's much worse than realizing the sovereignty of God would be realizing that God is not in fact sovereign. Would be in fact realizing that God is not in control. Because if God is dependent upon us, 
If God is lingering around in heaven, pacing back and forth, waiting on all of the various decisions that we're going to make over the course of the day to know what's coming tomorrow, that he doesn't know what's coming tomorrow. If God is waiting on me and it's all dependent upon me and all of this is under my control, let me just tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to blow it. The will of God is not going to get accomplished if it is dependent upon me and my wisdom and your wisdom. But the Bible tells us that God knows the end from the beginning. That he knew revelation when he began to speak in Genesis. That God knows that victory has already come. Victory has already been secured in Christ Jesus. God already knows that those of us who are in Christ will never be separated from him. He already knows that we will be forever at his table. He already knows that we will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Crying out with all the creatures of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He already knows that. Because God is sovereign. And God is in control. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, as much as it offends our arrogant human pride, our desire to want to be in control, we want a God who is in control. We want a God who is ruling. We want a God who can assure our victory. We want a God that can assure our salvation. A God that can assure our redemption. A God that can, when he says that he's going to hold us firmly in his grips, can mean it. Now, what is being given? Secrets, right? Secrets. It's a, it's a strange word. If you have the, the King James Version, your version may say mysteries. That, that there's are secrets that are being given. Mysteries. This is what the disciples have. You know, he says in, uh, he says in verse 11, to you it has been given. This is what they have been given. They have been given the secrets to the kingdom. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because it doesn't really appear as though Jesus is really uh, performing a very secretive mission here. It doesn't seem that Jesus is like working in the underground church, kind of trying to bubble under the surface and just kind of burst onto the scene one day. Jesus and John the Baptist, even before him, has been preaching to thousands of people. He has been telling them that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's been telling them that they must repent from their sin and come to him. He's been performing miracles that are drawing in multitudes of people. He's even been looking at people and saying, your son, your sins have been forgiven. He has not been secretive in his message. He has not been secretive in his ministry. And so when he talks about the secrets, what exactly is he talking about? See, what he's talking about here is that it's one thing to hear the word of God. It's one thing to read the Word of God. It's one thing to look around the creation and perceive the, the existence of God and the truth of God. That's what our, our society, that's kind of where the trend is now. Let's just look around. Let's just be spiritual people. Obviously, there's something. There's this spiritual world. And so let's just look around at the creation. Let's just look around where we are. And let's just be, let's just be real spiritual about it. Man, we don't got to get messed up in that organized religion kind of stuff. You know, we just, let's just enjoy the Spirit. Enjoy Enjoy the spiritual moment, right? What's the problem with that? This is exactly the kind of thing that says you do not know the secret of the kingdom of God. You do not know the truth about the kingdom of heaven because it's one thing to hear God's word. It's one thing to, to see the evidence of God everywhere around you. It's something completely different to really hear God's word. 
It's something completely different to really see it. It's one thing to hear it. It's another thing to understand it. It's one thing to see it. Another thing to perceive it. Another thing to appreciate it. Another thing to love it and to treasure it. I think Paul really helps us. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The word that... The, the Greek word that, that Jesus uses here, mysterion, is actually a word that Paul frequently uses. And it's a word that Paul uses to discuss things that must be spiritually seen. That they, in other words, they are things that not, cannot be really seen with just, just physical, plain eyes. They're not something that just anybody can see. The Spirit has to come in and help you to interpret. And he uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And I think this is just really helpful in us kind of unpacking what this means, the secrets of the kingdom. Let's, let's start in verse 6, and we're going to read to verse 14. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Notice the word in this next verse. But we impart a secret, right? That's the word we just, that we just read in Matthew 13. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have, been, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, not the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For we, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. See, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying the kingdom of God, the truth about God, is secret from man. It's hidden from man. They cannot perceive it. They cannot see it. Why? Their vision has been blinded by their sinfulness. Their, their heart has been hardened by their sinfulness. Their ears have been plugged by their sinfulness. Because they are sinners, they are unable to perceive the spiritual world. All of that has gone dark for them. Unless, unless the Spirit of God comes in and He softens the heart. Unless the Spirit of God comes in and He opens their eyes and He unstops their ears and He awakens their hearts to the truth about God. That if He does not do that, then they may hear the truth about God, but it doesn't enter their heart. They may see the truth about God, but they do not love it. They may even be like the plant that the, the seed drops in the shallow soil and it springs up quickly, professing faith in Christ. But they do not hang on because the whole time they have not truly treasured Christ in their hearts. And so when struggles come and difficulties come and confusion comes, they fall away. That maybe they're like the, the plant that is growing up in the thorny soil and they want to hold on to the world and they want to hold on to Christ because they have not truly seen Christ for the glory that he is. And so they hold on to the world until their small little superficial faith is ultimately choked out. That you, if you want to see the truth about God and you want to love the truth about God and you want to know the truth about God, you want to really see it, really hear it, really love it, really understand it, the Spirit of God has to work in you. 
The Spirit of God has to illuminate your mind. The Spirit of God has to open your eyes. The Spirit of God has to unstop your ears. I wonder if some of you this morning that maybe that's happening. I wonder if maybe this morning the Spirit of God is beginning to convict you like I talked about earlier this morning. I wonder if he's beginning to convict your heart. Maybe it's been going on for a couple of years like it was for, maybe it's been going on for a decade. Maybe it's been going on like for like 15 minutes and you're like trying to figure out if this is indigestion or conviction. Like you don't even really know how that fits together. But I wonder this morning if some of you are under the conviction. And right now he is beginning to illuminate your mind and you're seeing the word of God for the first time in your life as though it's alive. I wonder this morning if he's beginning to soften your heart and you feel yourself being cut to the soul. And this is kind of the first time. You don't really even know what to to do with all of that. But the Spirit of God is drawing you and he's awakening you to the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, come. Come to Christ. Come now. For some of you, you are already Christians. You're already already brothers and sisters in the faith. You're already secured in the family's house. So let me just say what we ought to do, Christians. We ought to pray. If our minds have been opened, if our eyes have been opened, if our ears have been opened, we should plead with God that he would open them more. We should plead with God that he would open them more because we have only seen a fraction of his glory. We have only seen a fraction of his excellencies. We have only seen a fraction of his goodness. We only understand a fraction of his word. We should go to God and say, God, no man only wants to see the edge of his treasure. Take us deeper. Take us deeper. We are the astronaut that wants to see all of the moon, not just the pictures. We want to go deeper, Lord. This morning, do you find in your heart a love and a desire and a hunger to go deeper and to see more clearly and to love more passionately the truth about God. If so, the mysteries of the kingdom have been given to you by God Almighty. Praise his name based on no merit, no performance, no deserving on your own behalf. God just generously, graciously, mercifully loves you. Do you see how this encourages the disciples? Do you see how this lifts their hearts up? The sovereignty of God is good news to the people of God. The sovereignty of God is worthy of worship to the people of God. He comes into verse 12 and he begins to describe two people in starkly different circumstances. If you were here last week, we talked about four different people uh, represented by four different types of soil. But what Jesus does here in the explanation of parables and why he teaches in parables is he kind of narrows that down to two. And so what we see here is three of the soils are, are kind of described in one person. And then the one soil, the soil that was good, the soil that produced fruit, uh, sometimes 160, 30 fold is represented by the other. The first group of people that he describes, the first person that he describes in verse 12 is the disciples. Those who, to whom the secrets of the kingdom have been given. Those to whom uh, the truth about God has been seen and loved and enjoyed and treasured. And what does he say to them? You've already got a lot. You've already got a lot. You already know the truth about Christ. You already know that you can be right with God. You already know that you can be forgiven of your sin. You already know all of that. And guess what? You're going to get more. You're going to get more. As a matter of fact, you're going to receive in abundance. See, I think Jesus is looking on. He's looking to the future. They've they've seen the kingdom inaugurated in Christ Jesus, but one day his disciples will see the kingdom fully fully consummated in Christ Jesus. You see, it's good 
to be a prince, but it's better to be a king. It's good to be engaged, but it's better to be married. It's good to know that you're going to win. It's better to actually be victorious. It's good to have the promises given. Oh, but brothers and sisters, it is far more glorious to witness the promises fulfilled. And that is what Christ is talking about. That right now, you're in the midst of struggles, my disciples. Right now, you are going out as sheep among wolves. Right now, brother is turning against brother. Father is turning against sons. And life is tough. Right now, it is difficult. And though you have the, the, the assurance of my kingdom to cling to, one day, my brothers, one day, my disciples, one day, my beloved, you, it is going to be even better. You are going to have even more. You see, brothers and sisters, right now, we go through our struggles and we go through our difficulties and we cry our tears. And we have Christ to cling to. I have no idea how a person in this world can survive one second without Christ and his church to hold fast to. And so we're able to hold fast to and Christ gets us through it. And the church gets us through it. And the gospel gets us through it. And the promises get us through it. But one day, brothers and sisters, there will be nothing to get through. It will only be Christ. And we will be with Christ, enjoying Christ, knowing Christ, with his bride, with his church, with no suffering, no tears, no pain, nothing to worry about. Just with him, enjoying him always. It's going to get better going to get better. We live in a state of paranoia, most of us. Always looking over our shoulder, always looking around the corner, assuming that tragedy is lurking nearby. Some of you have endured tragedy that I cannot even begin to comprehend. Some of you have to wake up every day and face realities that I would not even wish upon my worst enemies. Christ holds you fast, doesn't he? And he helps you through those days. And he helps you overcome your paranoia. And he helps you overcome your anxiety. And he helps you overcome your fear of tomorrow. And every single day, you taste the newness of his mercy. But brothers and sisters, one day, it's going to be better than that. One day, all paranoia will be vanquished. One day, all potential for tragedy will go away. One day, all potential for pain will evaporate. And you will have none of that, just Christ holding you fast, day by day, moment by moment, no fear, no trepidation, no anxiety, no paranoia, just your treasure, just Jesus forever. One moment of glory to the next moment of glory to the next moment of glory. Restless, free in the arms of Christ. You already have a lot, but you're going to get an abundance. You're getting more. Now, the other group of people that Jesus describes in verse 12 have a starkly different circumstance, don't they? Let's read verse 12 again together. Verse 12 says, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will, be given an, or, and he will have an abundance. But for the, from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So he has nothing. He's bankrupt. 
And even what he has, we've taken from him. So this is literally a man that loses his house, loses his cars, loses his family, loses every, has no retirement account, no bank account, no savings account, totally bankrupt. He walks out of the house only for the bank to look at him and say, give me the shirt. Give me the pants. Give me the shoes. Give me what you've got on. And he's left totally naked, totally exposed, without a stitch of clothing to his name. Jesus says, this is the picture of the man who does not perceive the truth about the kingdom of God. And having not perceived the truth about the kingdom of God, he is living for this kingdom. He is living for this empire. He is living for this world. And so he fights, and he scratches, and he scrounges, and he claws, and he works, and he saves, so that he might just obtain some bit of this rotted out, rusted out treasure that he can have here. And he fights, and he claws, and he scratches all the days of his life. But you know it's true what they say? You'll never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. That the saddest, strangest most devastating type of poverty is those that find their wealth in the world. Because to find your wealth in the world is to be utterly bankrupt no matter how much of the world you have. Now you might have fun, and you might have friends, and you might have things, but when the clock strikes midnight, your carriage is going to turn into a pumpkin, and you're going to realize that everything was artificial. So I ask you to look at your heart. Look at your life and figure out who you are. Which person in verse 12 are you? And if you're trying to figure all of that out and you're kind of working through that in your mind and working through that in your heart this morning, I'd just say ask yourself a simple question. What do you love most? What do you love most? You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be frank with yourself. You have to be transparent with yourself. But ask yourself what you love most. And if your answer is any person or anything other than Jesus himself, then you are the other person. You are the other person. It can be your job. It can be your house. It can be your things. It can be your wife. It can be your kids. But whatever it is that you love most, and a lot of us say that we love God most. A lot of us say that we love Jesus most. But do we really? Do we really? Looking at our lives, looking at our priorities, looking at the this trajectory and the shape and our thoughts and our, and our, our passions, do we really? Which man are you? So Jesus takes this opportunity in verse 13 to come back around to the initial question, right? He comes back around to the initial questions of the disciples, and he says, you want to know why I speak in parables? That's why I speak in parables. As hard as it is, as as difficult as it is for you to understand, as difficult as it is maybe for your, your heart to wrap itself around that, that's why I speak in parables. I speak in parables because to some I am being revealed, and from others I am being concealed. I speak in parables so that I might identify those who have been brought into the kingdom of God and those who are still on the outside of the kingdom of God. I speak in parables so that I might know to whom it has been given and from whom it has been withheld. You know, a parable and an illustration are different. We typically think about a parable as being an elaborate illustration, but they're very different. When we do an illustration, if you think back to what I said about the bouquet of flowers in my wife, that required no thinking, right? 
Like you understood exactly what I was talking about, and it didn't take you a lot of thinking, a lot of unpacking, a lot of pondering to really understand exactly what I meant when I, when I talked about the difference in love and wage in the bouquet of flowers. That's how an illustration works. An illustration connects the truth to the heart and the mind through a very simple story that requires almost zero thinking. But a parable is different. A parable doesn't work like that. A parable is meant for you to linger in it. A parable is meant for you to contemplate it. It's meant for you to think deeply about it. You see, even that says something about your heart. See, by those who would take the time to perceive the parable, to understand the parable, to contemplate the parable, to, to soak in the parable, that is the demonstration of a desire for the kingdom of God. It is the demonstration of a desire to understand the truth about Christ. That is, in fact, what we see in the disciples right here. When they go to Jesus and say, Jesus, explain this to us. We're, we're thinking on it. We're pondering it. And we, don't, we don't understand what you're saying. We don't, we don't get it. Why? They, had, they, they desired Christ. They desired to know more of Christ. They desired to understand the kingdom of God even more clearly. When you hear the word preach, do you just kind of just lock out, zone out? Or do you want to go deeper in what is being said? When you read the Word of God, are you reading through it as quickly as you can, checking it off your list? Or do you come upon things and think, man, I need to linger here a bit. I need to soak this in. I need to study this a bit. The demonstration of desire when you want to contemplate. And I think what we're seeing is we don't just see a picture of the sovereignty of God in, uh, in 10, verses 10 through 17. We also see a picture of the responsibility of man. That man is responsible. That there, there, are, there is a responsibility upon the man to want to love God, to, to want to linger, and that he will be held accountable if he does not find himself contemplating the truth of these parables. He quotes here from uh, Isaiah chapter 6, and I think this kind of even goes in a little bit farther into that same idea that we have a glimpse of the responsibility of man. And so as Matthew often does, he gives us the most extended quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. And if you remember, Isaiah chapter 6 is when Isaiah kind of receives his call to ministry. He's being commissioned for the work of God. And, Jesus, and God tells Isaiah that day, he says, Isaiah, you're going to go and you're going to preach. And this would bless you. You're going to go and you're going to preach and I'm going to make their hearts hard. You're going to go and preach and I'm going to make their eyes blind. You're going to go and preach, and I'm going to make their ears deaf. So you're going to preach and preach and preach, and they're going to hate you for it. You're going to go, and you're going to be faithful, and you're going to do what I called you to do, and I'm going to make sure that it doesn't work. How about that for your church, gro church growth strategy, right? And so Jesus is quoting, but there's a subtle change. In the book of Isaiah, he says, I will make you, I will make you blind. I will, or I will make them blind. I will make you, them deaf. I will make them their hearts hardened. But what does Jesus say in verse 15? For the people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. He doesn't say make. He says I'm here and it's already that way. Their hearts have already grown hard. Their eyes have already grown blind. Their ears have already grown dull. They are not interested in the truth about God. They are not interested in the secrets of the kingdom of God. God has so far made them hard as he has just not made them soft. God has not made them hate Jesus. He has just not stopped them from hating Jesus. 
Their hearts were already hardened. Their eyes were already blinded. God just did not change the condition. In other words, God is allowing them to do exactly what they want to do. He is allowing them to be exactly who they have chosen for themselves to be. Hardened to the truth of God, doing what they want to do the way that they want to do it. And they are on the hook. They are responsible. They are responsible for their rebellion against God, for their distaste of God, for their offense toward God. See, that's what's true of a hardened heart. Do you know why our hearts are hardened? Because we want them that way. We want them that way. We find our favorite sin, sins that we're committing, sins that we're imagining, sins that we're craving, Sins that we're desiring. And you know what we don't want? We don't want God to come in and say, that's not right. We don't want God to come in and convict us of it because we enjoy the sin and we want the sin. And so we want to harden our hearts and not and close our ears and cover our eyes. We do not hear because we do not want to hear. We come to God and we say, God, I want to sleep with her. God, I want to live with him. God, I want to keep my money. And so I will not hear what you say. I will not hear what your word says. I will not surrender my life to your control. I will not hand over my heart to you because I don't want you to change it. Is that where you find yourself today? Is that where you find yourself today? told you last week the most terrifying position a man, a woman, a teenager can find themselves in in this life is a hardened heart before God. Is that where you find yourself? Dulled to the truth about God. Then he says to his disciples, ever encouraging them, but blessed are your eyes. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You see, think about the, the position of the disciples for just a second. The disciples are in a sorrowful yet joyful position. Remember what Jesus had said. He said, brother is going to turn against brother. They're going to have them killed. Father is going to turn against son and have his son killed because they are identifying with Christ. It's becoming very real for the, the disciples. They had come through Capernaum. Many of, many of the disciples lived in Capernaum and grew up in Capernaum. They had family in Capernaum. They had neighbors in Capernaum. They had friends in Capernaum. And Jesus looked at Capernaum and said, woe to you, Capernaum. For your judgment will be greater than that of Sodom. Can you imagine the sorrow in the disciples' lives? That was their friends. Their friends that were turning on them. That was their family. Their family that was turning on them. They felt the weight. When Jesus is talking about all of this, this is personal. This sorrow was real. It wasn't abstract. It was concrete. And it was painful. And that in and of itself would have crushed them. But Jesus doesn't just make them sorrowful. He gives them the joy, right? He lets them see through the darkness to the glimmer of light on the other side. And he says, my brothers, my brothers, as hard as it is, as difficult as it is, you are blessed. You are blessed. 
You are blessed because you are the ones to whom it has been shown. You are blessed because you are seeing now what Isaiah never saw, what Jeremiah never saw, what Ezekiel never saw. You are seeing what Elijah never saw, what Moses couldn't fathom. You are seeing it right in front of you, and it is only the beginning, brothers. One day you are going to have even more. More is to be given to you. In abundance you will have. You see, for the disciples... They thought through their family, and they thought through their hometown, and they thought through their friends. No doubt, tears would flow down their face. But as hard as those days were, God was still good. God was still good. Christian, is there anything we need to hear more than that this morning? We look around our world, and it seems as though it's just a place of sorrow, a place of misery, We have divorces, we have child abuse and pedophilia, we have the undermining of marriage, we have our society seeming to unravel at the core, we have infant caskets, infertility, orphans, starvation, we have parents that won't talk to their kids, dads that don't care about their children. Children that grow up and they they don't even know what love is, have never experienced love, have never been given a gift. We live in the world and the world is bad and the times are tough. But Christian, God is still good. God is still good. In the midst of your darkest season, the season that you know just won't end, as long as it is, as unbearable as it is, it is but a streak of lightning across the backdrop of eternity that all of this is going to in a second vanish away and you are going to be ushered into glory. I find myself often being overcome by, by playing out worst case scenarios in my mind. I often find myself being overcome by immediately going to worst case scenarios in every situation. And it starts this downward spiral in my life and it takes me to a dark place. But you know what God has shown me this week? Is that I can reverse that in Christ Jesus. That whenever I find myself in the downward spiral of this life, in the downward spiral of my own sinfulness, of my own frailty, of my own weakness, I can stop and by Christ, in Christ, for Christ, through Christ, I can begin to spiral upward and get lost in the excellencies of God and the glories of God. That I can look around and I can see a sun that is shining and know the God who put him there. I can begin to play out best case scenarios because God is in control and God is reigning and God is sovereign and I am his. Brothers and sisters, as disciples of Christ, Train yourself to spiral upward. Train yourself to get lost in your thoughts about God. Train yourself to see God everywhere and to let one thought of God splinter into another thought of God, into another thought of God, into another thought of God and feel the pressures and the stresses and the pains and the anxieties of this life melt away from you. Because nothing, nothing Nothing calms a racing heart like pondering the greatness and glory of God. Let's pray together.